0: Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, You'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.
1: I think the best way to get into comedy is only to watch amateurs guys you're going to be working with all you need to do is be better than that guy in order to move forward don't look at a, a guy who's been doing it forever guys that have hours behind them you're never gonna you're not gonna learn anything that way you're only gonna learn when you figure out your voice
0: everybody. This is another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, coming from Montreal from my hotel room. It's been an amazing week, and I've had a great, great time here. Everybody's been so supportive. It's been unbelievable. And the show and you guys who have been so supportive writing in and emailing me, it's just insane. And uh, we're, we're, we're really doing something here. And I say we because all of you who have been listening have been... Uh, Incredible. And as I sit across and I start my cold open across from my guest today, which I am beyond blown away and excited that I am across from because uh, (laughs) he actually is a very big part of my life. Uh, He doesn't know as much a part of my life as he is, but he is. But Russell Peters is a guy who I actually can relate to in a pinhead kind of way. I started this podcast because I just, I guess I just wanted to do something that might have an impact on young people around the world, young artists or whatever who, you know, I was in these pitch meetings with network executives, studio presidents, and a lot of times in meetings with people like yourself. And when I left the meeting, I'd realize that, my God, if anybody could see some of the things that were said that were so important to the business in these things, that it would it would be so valuable. But, you know, when you're meeting with Kevin Riley or Steve McPherson or Eric Tannenbaum or or an artist such as yourself,
1: people Riley's a good guy.
0: Yeah, like Riley. That's right. You don't get to see those kind of things, and so I wanted to present this to people so they could see that kind of thing and hear what was going on in those meetings. And when I started it, I started at zero zero. I, you know, recorded the thing. I put it out there. And one of the things that you should know about me, Russell, is that those who can't manage. That's right. And so, when it comes to somebody like Dane Cook, who I work with for seventeen years, and I went through the whole thing of the arena tour and all the craziness, when he gave me the plan of how he wanted to execute the social media, how he knew it, how he believed in it, how he felt it should go, I was just a conduit. Uh, I said, in "Another podcast as a manager, you're just, you know, you're putting the checklist together." the artist puts the list together that they want, and you go and you, you you check it off and you do whatever you do. I helped Dane with that stuff, with his talent in that area and my, you know, stick-to-itiveness, and I facilitated and helped execute as much as I could. And um, with his talent and mine, it, it, it went pretty well. Yeah, it sure did. When I started the podcast... I don't know how to do social networking for myself. I don't know how to do the things that I need to do. I can do it for somebody else. I guess I know how to do it, but I I feel uncomfortable doing it for myself. It's it's like bragging about yourself.
1: It's hard to do unless your ego will let you.
0: Yeah, so when I put it out, I just said to myself, look, I'm just going to do this. And if people pass it on, they pass it on. And if they don't, they don't. And and that's it and a year later and you know 3 million downloads later you realize holy shit maybe this is something and that people have to say that that, that is going to be helpful to people and it makes me feel good that I can do that. I know it's kind of odd that a manager or a producer is doing one of these things, but it just, I didn't care about what anybody else thought. Right. I just well, that's, want... That's
1: how you have to do things in life. You can't do it based on what you what other people are going to think. Otherwise, you're just going to be part of the group, part of the crowd. If yeah. You stick, stick out in that crowd. You got to go your own way.
0: Yeah. And so I started it and it's doing well. And because of all the people out there who are listening and listening now, I really appreciate you. And I can't tell you how grateful I am. And so here's my story. I'll tell you uh, another version of how we met, but go on.
1: (laughs) I'm not going to tell you how we met. I'll tell you how we met. All right, go. I met you. uh, First time I met you was here at the festival in 96. 96. 96. You had long hair and a ponytail. Uh, You were a hippie. Um, yes, I was. Probably was wearing cowboy boots. Yes, yes. Sadly, it's nothing worse than a Jew wearing cowboy boots. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it's like a black, black guy wearing Birkenstocks. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, I met you here at the festival. I think you might have been managing Jeff Ross at the time. Yes, I probably managed him three different times. Yes. And then uh, and then uh, you owned the Boston Comedy Club in New York at the time. That's correct, on West 3rd Street. That is correct. And I would go and I would get spots there. Keith Robinson and uh, Patrice used to get me in in there. Patrice O'Neal. yes, and uh, and I would see you there, but I would get that uh, I would, you know, you can get the blank hello from somebody. Oh, hey. They, you know, you, you, Barry would always say hi to you, but you saw the blankness in his eyes when he'd be like, eh, he'd look through you. He'd say hi, but he, you were looking through people at the time. So I was a blank stare guy. Yeah, you were. You were the... That's okay. painful. No, it's not. I mean, I understood. In 96, I'd only been doing stand-up in seven years. and Oh, so I was just doing it to people who didn't matter. Yeah, at the time. I mean, no. <laughs> yeah, I guess if they didn't matter and be, so you're you didn't, you you didn't, didn't, you didn't really know them, so, you know. So you're saying you didn't matter. I didn't matter. I did, I actually did not matter at that time. Okay. Seven years in, who matters? Nobody matters at that time. And I was just happy to be doing spots in your club. I'm, I, for me, I was doing spots in New York, and it wasn't a black room because that's the only spots I would get. It'd be like in uh, Long Island at Nagasaki's or. But in New York, I believe I was one of the few places
0: that gave you spots, right? Yeah, you sure were. So that blank stare meant something.
1: Yeah, it was that blank stare of uh, I'm. I know I've met this kid, but I can't remember where. Got it. And so that's where we first met. What I was going to say for, this is a very unusual cold open,
0: but I'm glad it's this way. (laughs) So in Dane Cook, we did this thing uh, where we sold a show based on a little trailer we did. I don't even know how to say this because it's such a crazy story, but it relates to you. so much Dane had an idea he said listen I want to go in a tour bus all across the country and I want to film it and go to different arenas I've never done these places and these colleges or these big venues and I want to do a different you know activities during the day and I'm going to write a check to you, Barry, for $300,000 to do this. And you're going to take that money and you're going to do it with your company and make it work. And we're going to do like 10 episodes worth of stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, uh, well, Dane, I mean, you, you, you're spending your own money. That's risky. <laughs> and, and then number two is the fact that. Uh, You know, $30,000 an episode to make a television show isn't good. Oh, don't worry about that, Barry. You're going to sell it for me. I said, I'm going to sell it for you. He said, yeah, you're going to sell it. I said, well, how how do you know I'm going to sell it? You're going to sell it. I I trust you. You're going to sell it. I said, well, what if I don't sell it? He said, then I guess I'll have the most expensive uh, home video to show my grandkids. And so he risked three hundred thousand dollars of his own money. This was for tourism. Yes, hired tour buses. We went across the country, did everything, shot everything with that Gary. Was, that was Dane, Gary, Bobby, Gary Gullman, Robert Jay Kelly, Davis. and
1: Jay Davis. Yeah, and Dane Cook. I remember watching that when it was on TV, that yeah. was shot in 2006, aired 2007. Yeah, so I met with one of the
0: guests from Industry Standard, Chris Albrecht, who was at HBO, mm-hmm. and showed him a little teaser clip we made from it. He bought the show, he bought the special. And what was weird about, I won't talk about the special here now because it was just, I'll talk about it a little later with you. <laughs> Suffice to say, we sold the hour special there at Chris Albrecht, and the pitch was we were going to do it at Boston Garden. I remember that. And he asked me, uh, well, um, have you ever done an arena before? And I said, no. He said, well, in Boston, have you ever done a theater there before? I said, No. He said, well, what's the biggest venue you've done there? I said, "Uh, Comedy Connection, 500 seats. (laughs) He said, well, how are you going to sell out Boston Garden? I mean, if I'm going to give you a special, I mean, that's a big thing. I said, we're going to sell it out because something's happening. Something's really happening socially that I've never seen before. He has over 2 million friends on MySpace. Yeah, he was the guy. It's going to happen. And Chris Albrecht trusted (laughs) me and committed to the special and to tourgasm and trusted Dane and his talent and so during tourgasm we had a lot of different ideas some ideas were good Mm -hmm. some ideas weren't so good and one of the ideas we had was to do a big big shoot at a racetrack With all of his fans coming and all the guys coming down like a helicopter and Russell Peters was there in his glory and his white
1: shoes. <laughs> it was 2007, guys, don't judge. They were white and, sneakers, in all, in all fairness, but... And he was there, yeah, On and a side d- note, Barry's wearing Ed Hardy shoes right now. So.
0: How can you tell they're Ed Hardy shoes? Because
1: it says F-ing Ed Hardy on oh, the side okay, of your shoes.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, uh, and I'm wearing bell-bottoms, which is pretty You good. sure I'm, are. You I, are in the wrong. You were stuck in 2007, buddy.
0: As Jeffrey <laughs> Ross would say, this is my Forever 41 outfit. <laughs> um so <laughs> we're doing this thing and there's thousands of people lined up they're orchestrating all these people the guys were going to walk through and they asked me to roast them <laughs> well not roast them introduce them and i decided that i would roast them in front of all these people, thousand people, yep, and I right. did it, and they weren't expecting it, and they were pissed off at me for doing
1: it. That's when they showed up in a helicopter, right?
0: That's right. They came yeah. down the helicopter wearing like these jet suits and helmets.
1: Yeah, I remember Dane's dad was. There. I met Dane's dad that
0: day. Dane's dad, who passed away, and the whole idea was that he was going to come down. And he was doing going to do a signing for all of his fans that came, and give them a poster of some kind. But it was hot that day. It was really hot. And the crowds were getting pissed off. And the ones that waited were waiting hours and hours and hours to get a signature. And a lot of people left pissed off and feeling upset about things when the intention was to do something great for the fans. Yes. But it didn't work out that way for all the fans that came because it was just too long a line. We didn't expect there was going to be. I mean, there must have been. Three four thousand people. Yeah, there. three to five
1: thousand people there. I <laughs> see. He just did a manager move. Did you catch that? I said three to four thousand people. I said yeah, three to five thousand people. <laughs> he just fucking did that. Did you hear that? Play that back and hear it again, guys. <laughs> I uh, yes.
0: So there were like five to seven thousand people there, and um, I'm kidding.
1: <laughs> there was easily seven to fifteen thousand people there that day. <laughs> but the fact is, Russell was there. I don't know why he
0: was there at the time. He invited me. He was there. The only comedian that was there out of the ones that were there. And I met him again, and I said hello, and I hugged him, and I looked in his eyes. I took my hands on both of his shoulders, and I looked at you, and I said, I'm so glad you're here. And all through the day, I studied you, and you did this thing that Royce Clayton said to me, famous baseball player who won a world championship with the Red Sox, who actually did one of these podcasts. He said, the key to success is study greatness, Mm -hmm. imitate greatness, become great, and that day, you were just, I could tell you were just, the wheels were turning, mm-hmm. and the wheels were turning, and I felt you were saying to yourself, I can do this, I can have this many fans and more, I can sustain this many fans, I'm just as funny as anybody here, and that's not an insult to anybody, right. I'm just as smart as anybody here, I'm just a savvy the world just doesn't know it yet and I studied you that day and I saw you looking and the way you observed and when I got back home that night as oddly as it sounded me actually thinking about you late at
1: night that's awkward. But while he was stroking his uh, seven to eight inches or seven to nine, as Barry would call it, <laughs> I am Jewish. You're going a little high. So um, <laughs> I was being generous. Thank you
0: so much. I wish I could manage that anyway. Hey so uh, so what I'm trying to say is that I went home and I laid down ready to go to sleep and I thought to myself, he's next. And Dane doesn't know He's next. Robert doesn't know he's next. Gary doesn't know he's next. Jay Davis doesn't know he's next. But I know he's next. He's going to make it happen next. And he's going to, what he does is going to dwarf everything. And to that end, to the end of this uh, little cold open, which is longer than I wanted it to be, I just want to share with everybody out there that It might seem weird to go to a racetrack to observe a comedian. And the funny thing was, he was the only guy observing. And that's what makes Russell Peters great, because he isn't afraid to go into situations and do things where he's going to think, God, I'm kind of embarrassed to be here, or do I really belong here, or whatever. And all through his career, like he said at the Boston Comedy Club, come by... Do the shows you don't really belong there but just go navigate pretend you belong and observe all the people that are great and see what they're doing and look at the things they do wrong and look at the things they do right that day on tourgasm there was a lot of things we did wrong there was a lot of things we did right And I feel like you're an example to every single person who's a comedian, a musician, a magician, or anybody in any walk of life. You always went the extra mile to get there. And the amazing thing about you, which very few people realize, is that thing your parents used to tell you. It's not getting there that's hard. It's staying there that's hard. It sure and is. Russell Peters, you are staying there, and you are an example to everybody listening to this podcast. And for those listening, if you want to study greatness and imitate greatness and become great, one of the first things you can do is observe Barry Cats, back
1: in the house! 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 Let's do this!
0: All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, here from Montreal. My guest today, Russell Peters, I'm going to introduce him and hopefully he will still be awake after I get done. Russell Peters is a Canadian comedian and actor who has become one of the most popular and recognizable names in comedy in this country, in Montreal, and also all through Canada, in the United States and all over the world. Russell began performing in Toronto in 1989 along with stand-up. Russell also performed as a disc jockey in 2004, and the turning point in his career came when his performance on the Canadian comedy show Comedy Now went viral all across the world. Since then, he has set records for sales and attendance at comedians' performances all over the world. In 2007, he was the first comedian to sell out the Air Canada Center Mm -hmm. in Toronto with more than 16,000 tickets sold in two days for a single show. In 2009 he broke the UK comedy sales record at London's famous O2 Arena. In 2010 Peter's show in Sydney, Australia had an audience of 13,800 making it the largest stand-up comedy show in Australian history. He has the distinction of shooting seven hour specials. Get that. Not five to seven. Seven <laughs> hour specials. He's also an actor in the movie Chef. I remember that. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, that not Shaft. Yeah, chef. Not Shaft. But it was definitely Chef. It was. Uh, this year he solidified himself as a comedy maven when he was named as one of the judges on season eight of Last Comic Standing, a show very near and dear to my That's heart. That's true. Alongside fellow comedy titans, Roseanne Barr and Keenan Ivory Wayans. He is about to start. Uh, he is about to start his fourth arena tour across the world, which is unprecedented. And I know you're going to enjoy this guy. and We're going to learn a lot about life and comedy and success and how to stay there. Please welcome my guest today: the man, the myth, <laughs> the five to seven inches of Russell Peters. It's right in the middle, but it's really girthy. Um, <laughs> Thank you so much for coming, man. Thanks for making me come, Barry. <laughs> you know, a guy could take that two ways. We were supposed to. <laughs> um, you know, I really appreciate you doing this. This is the thing also when you're it, uh, You go up to people and you ask them to do things. And it's one of the most difficult things as an artist, because technically speaking, when I ask you to do this,
1: you want to say no no i i here's the thing barry i feel um you know i almost feel like i'm on the outside still Com- comedy and never mind comedy and and the whole entertainment world is is high school and then there's the popular kids and then there's the uh, nerdy kids and then there's the cool kids and then there's the loners and i'm pretty much uh uh, a loner, cool kid, I guess you know. Um, I'm not in with the popular kids, so when I get asked to do anything that is uh, outside of just performing, I'm I'm always up for it because I never get asked to do stuff. So. I don't know if people just assume they're like, ah, he doesn't want to do it, uh, but I do. I want to do everything, or if they say, hey, he doesn't, he doesn't need the money, or it's not about the money. It's about it's about the project. It's about the uh, the, uh, the the acceptance. It's all about that kind of stuff. So I love doing this type of stuff. Well, I think that I, I want to talk about uh, the beginning,
0: but I think now that we're on this topic, I think it's a really, really powerful But because I'm uniquely qualified to talk about this and Absolutely. so are you. Absolutely. You leapfrog over other comedians... Not good for the wealth of friends and people in your corner. It's the tall poppy syndrome where Mm -hmm. you grow faster than they do and they want to cut you down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And having worked with Dane, I was inside the sausage factory. You sure were. A lot of sausages. And I share this with anybody that will listen to this podcast there's a lot of things that have been said about Dane Cook and how he is as a person and how he was comedically and this and that. I never had a cross word with Dane Cook. Dane Cook never raised his voice to me. Dane Cook never said a derogatory word about any comedian that I ever know of that he worked with.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yet... He was a guy who was violently turned away by the comedy community, was a guy who never got the respect that he deserved from the, how should I say, the establishment establishment. And I think the reason is when you're getting off stage at Madison Square Garden and that's the picture on your album and you're smiling as you get off high-fiving people, Mm -hmm. The guys who've been working for 24 years
1: trying to get to that level aren't very happy about it. I don't think anybody should try to get to that level, in all fairness. I think comedy is one of those things where you do it for the love of doing it. I would—you know, that was never an end game for me to play arenas. It was—I just wanted to make people laugh, and I love doing comedy. And uh, whether I made it or didn't make it it was irrelevant to me. I just love what I do. So— I think when people look at it and go, oh, I should be doing that, then then you're probably in it for the wrong reasons. Well, but you can't
0: control the other comedians and what reasons they're in it for.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody has their reasons for whatever, however they feel about certain people. And uh, sometimes it's warranted. Sometimes it's hearsay. Sometimes it's just uh, blind prejudice.
0: Well, this is the thing about you that I find very wonderful, is that in the privacy of your own home, I'm sure you comment to the people that you
1: love and the people that are there in your inner circle about how you feel about certain things. I always I you know I it, I I don't even hold it back that far. I'm not afraid to really say what I think about things and and say what people have said or done to me as long as it's not hearsay, as it's first hand. Are you the kind of guy that when you hear
0: somebody has said something that discounts all the greatness that you've achieved. Are you the kind of guy that when you run into them in the hallway, you go up to them and you say, why don't you just talk to me about it?
1: Um, <clears throat> if you know, I'm a, I'm a motive guy and an intention guy. What, what is their motive and what is their intent when they're saying these things? And, uh, sometimes it's idle chatter. Sometimes their tongue gets a little carried away with them and they didn't mean it. They just said it. Um, I don't really take too much heat in that, to be honest with you. And I, I always try to be as nice as I can to everybody I meet. I don't care if you're the head of a studio or if you work in a gas station. You all get treated equally with me. And that's just the way I've always lived my life because I was the guy working in uh in the stock room in a store I worked in a factory and and I would see how people with a little bit more than me would would talk to me and then they would talk to somebody else and I always hated that I don't like eliteness and uh, or if that's even a word I don't like elitists and uh so I, I don't ever want to live my life like that
0: Well, let's talk about that. Let's go way back. Okay. Take me through where you grew up, what your family situation was like, the economics, and then take me to where the first time you had any kind of thought about being
1: in show business, what happened, what was the inspiration? Okay. So I was born in Toronto in 1970, and I used to, uh, I was the biggest Kiss fan in the world in the 70s like probably started around 1976 when i was six years old i got uh i got hooked on kiss one of my friends had the destroyer album and then uh, in 1977 the love gun album came out and that was my first record uh i convinced my parents that they were clowns and that i was buying a clown record <laughs> they were immigrants they didn't know <laughs> i don't know these clowns whatever they're doing uh, he likes the clowns, and. Um, So I was very influenced by that. And uh, from a very young age, I was always against what people would tell you to do um, or what they would force upon you. And and that was uh, it goes right back to music for me at that point. Whatever they played on the radio, I was like, I don't like that. I was the B side guy because the music I liked, which was kiss was never played on the radio and the popular kiss songs were the ones I didn't like, you know? So I was always that way minded. So you weren't listening to Beth. I hear you calling. No, I was, I was listening to, you know, King of the nighttime world, you know, got it. I was listening to love gun and strutter and all that stuff, stuff they weren't playing on the radio anyway. And then disco came along and I, and I very much loved disco at the same time, but you had to hide that at that time. you were only allowed to like one thing. You weren't allowed to like two things. Um, and I grew up in in a, in a town 20 minutes outside of Toronto called Brampton, Ontario. At that time, it was Bramalee. And uh, we lived in a townhouse complex. It was a very working class kind of neighborhood. And there was a lot of racism towards Indian people back then. And
0: now, um, this is what yeah, you're going to... i start trying not to laugh at me here. Okay. Okay. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's something that I went through. I, I never... It's you just, I know you're gonna not gonna believe this. You just said you're Indian, okay? Mm-hmm. I never thought of you as Indian. I never thought of you as anything. I never, I, I just, I, I, it never even occurred to me. I just thought of you as just a guy who was, I didn't even well,
1: think about that, Well, what... that's the thing. I, I always thought of myself as just a guy. And, and I think dealing with a lot of racism at a very young age, you get reminded that you're not just a guy from i honestly can remember from about the age of four um three even i actually I, I remember being babysat at three and and hearing things being said to me and then i didn't really know what they were talking about then then you continually hear it over and, the years and you're like what is this what is and for, what, what are they talking about and who is this f***ing Packy that they keep referring to i'm worried about this Packy guy that they keep talking about and so for our audience a, a derogatory way
0: to be racist towards an Indian person would be,
1: what would they say, Packy? Yeah, they would call us Packy. Is, like N- is that like the N-word? It's very much our N-word. And, uh, and while you would never just hear Packy. You would hear... F- in front of it. Uh, The minute you hear in front of any word is always bad. You know, you could say the N-word, but you add and that adds a little bit more venom to it, doesn't it? And uh, I didn't get it. I just couldn't figure it out. I don't, I didn't understand. You know, my name is Russell Peters. My mom and dad are Eric and Maureen. They both spoke English perfectly. Matter of fact, better than most of the people you'd ever meet in your life. My dad was a, an English major. He was a linguist. He was a writer. Um, um obviously you know to himself but he uh, at the end of the day his job was a meat inspector he he didn't have a great job he, he worked a uh, federal meat inspector he worked in a, a filthy chicken plant and a beef slaughterhouse and so my dad would come home stinking and covered in blood every day and my mom worked in Kmart in the in the cafeteria when Kmart's had a cafeteria you remember that they yeah had a little restaurant in the back yeah my mom worked in there and um so, you know, from from the time I was born, my parents both worked. I was a latchkey kid and my brother used to take care of me who's six years older than me. So when I was, you know, four, he was 10 and we would be alone on the streets and in the house and and on the bus uh, just to, just the way it was. And it didn't you know, it wasn't and, a bad thing. And that was legal in Canada to do well, that? It was the 70s, right? It was. We didn't even have car seats. Remember that? We didn't grow up with car seats or seat belts. They weren't that important to us. And I, I, I think to myself, now that you say that,
0: there's only one thing that the kids of today don't have that we had every place else they're far more advanced than everybody else but Mm -hmm. what they don't have is the independence that we had you just leave your house and your mother would just say to your mother listen I'll be home before supper and they wouldn't know where you were now when I'm in the school the school where my kids are every gate is locked and I'm an event and I'm looking every two seconds
1: where they are yeah yeah, we're very darty now. Our eyes are darting all over the place, you know. So keep going. So that's unbelievable. That visual picture that you
0: just had of your you dad coming home covered in blood, care of a ten-year-old boy. boy taking care of a four-year-old boy, and a ten-year-old boy taking
1: care of a four-year-old boy. It's crazy. So how did? Uh, well, it's oh. just the way it was. You know, my dad worked, and my mom worked. They would they would get up early in the morning. I think they would wake up every morning at six and leave by seven, and that was their day every day. And then my mom would come home, and she would make us dinner, and uh, that was it. We didn't really have much of a, it wasn't like a big social thing, like, oh, hey, Mom, hey, Dad, good to see you. It was more like, all right, there they are, and there they go. I'll see you later, you know what I mean? And so keep going. So what what, what happens next in your life throughout those years? <laughs> so, of- you know, you got the 70s, and, you know, I, I was uh, always a happy kid despite whatever was happening to me outside of the house, I was always innately a happy person. I still am. I, it's just the way I, I guess the way I've been built. I'm just a gen, I'm genuinely a happy person, which is good and not good for comedy. It's good to be happy, but it's, it could stifle your creativity. You know, you need a little bit of misery in your life. And I think I create my own misery nowadays uh, with the, with relationships, but you know, we'll get to that later. Um, uh, so you know I would I, I started buying uh, kiss records and then disco records, and then I discovered comedy records in the in around 78 I think what I got. records did you discover? I, I had uh Let's Get Small by Steve Martin. Mm-hmm. That was the one with the balloon yeah um, I had that. I had uh, indecent exposure, George Carlin. yeah I had um, big bamboo, cheech and Chong. The one that came with a giant rolling paper? Yep. And I was an eight-year-old, nine-year-old kid, and I was like, what is this dumb paper? And I threw it out, and the next-door neighbor was like, no! I did the same thing. I had no idea. What is this? I don't get it. Sister Mary Elephant. I loved Sister Mary Elephant. That had me
0: crying. For, For those of you in the audience who have never, ever heard Sister Mary Elephant from Cheech and Chong, you must go and stop this podcast right now and go to YouTube and play it. It's about three
1: minutes long. It's... But here's It's about three to five minutes long. I played it for one of my friends. One of my... uh, I'm 44 this year, and one of my good friends, Breezy, is 28. And I made him listen to it. I go, yo, you got to hear this. This is hilarious. And he sat there and stared at it. He goes, (laughs) what is that? I go, that was hilarious. And I realized... For us, comedy was about hearing and and visualizing. And now kids don't have that ability to just hear and visualize. They need to see. Why would I just want to hear this when I can see it? They'll They'll listen to it after they've seen it, but they need to see it first. And I had the 45 of Sister Mary Elephant. I think I traded somebody in my class for that. I think I had a uh, some forty five that they wanted. I think it might have been dust in the wind, and I was like, "Take this and give me Sister Mary Elephant." And back then, if you're a comedy artist and you had a 45 no oh, man, you imagine having a forty. If you had a forty
0: five disc, that would go on a record a player of a, of a comedy
1: bit. Yeah, that How mean, crazy is that? that meant you really made it. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't even understand the scope of what they were doing at that time. I would just laugh at the things they were saying. You know, Steve Martin, I, for some reason, this always made me laugh, was you guys are going to be on a record, and everybody laughs or claps, and he goes, mm, someday, maybe not mine, of course. And I always thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever heard in my life, and, and just to hear George Carlin swearing. But my dad didn't mind the George Carlin swearing because my dad was an English major, and and George was a linguist, and my dad was like, a, he appreciated the wordplay. So my dad and I could sit down and listen to George. Carlin together and my parents used to pull out the Red Fox uh, Dirty Jokes album when I wasn't around and play that. Def Jam before Def Jam. Jam. Sure as
0: hell was. Hey everybody I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success A -a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Fantastic. So you got the influence of comedy, and did you become funny as a teenager?
1: No, I think I always had that in me. I always, I would always use it, comedy to diffuse a situation, and then you know, as you get older, uh, you know, in my teens, uh, I started breakdancing at around twelve. So tell me about something that happened
0: in your life during this, because normally every comedian and every great artist. Something happens that blows a hole through them.
1: Well, here's what happened. I was dealing, you know, from a very young age, I would deal with that racism, and it was it was pretty intense for me. Especially, I remember being five years old, riding my bicycle through my townhouse complex, and um, there was a man on the corner who who lived at the corner house right by the stop sign, and he was a grown ass man with a family, wife, two kids, dog. And I I'm 5 years old. I'm riding my bicycle. He's watering his lawn and sprays me with his hose and says, "Get out of here, you packy." And I'm like, and I didn't know I didn't know what to do. I'm like, what I I was I just drove, rode my bike home. I was like, "What? I don't understand what happened just now." And so that scarred me very early. And then I would hear it all the time and then and when I got to high school, I I was, you know, the summer of 84 was probably my favorite time of my life before things started getting great in my life Um, because the summer of 84 I was I was I was a I was a fairly decent breakdancer and I was finally getting the attention of girls because they were like oh he's a b-boy let's let's talk to him you know and I was like these are and I was like oh my god girls are paying attention and and I was like this is awesome and it was I think it was at that moment where I realized I need to do something that's exceptional in order for people to look past the Indian thing and whatever it is I'm going to do can't be racially related. It has to just be something cool. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so breakdancing really, really made me so happy at that time. And, uh, and then I went to high school. I started high school in 84 and then that took a different turn for me. Um, for ninth grade and 10th grade, I, I got, I literally left school crying quite a bit because I would get bullied and I was a really small kid. I was four foot 11 and 75 pounds in ninth grade. And, um, I would get beat up or spit on or thrown in a garbage can, literally picked up and put into a garbage can and uh, kicked in the chest with a guy who was wearing steel toe boots. I remember all this shit. I remember walking home with girls and being like, oh, my God, this is so cool, And, and I, you know... Be funny and and jokey, and they'd be cool, and and then somebody would see them, and I, it happened to me a few times where a guy, somebody was like, "What are you doing with the fucking pecky?" And the girl never talked to me again. And I was like, "Well, this was pretty awful, right?" And then uh, I left that high school after tenth grade, and uh, well, I got kicked out because I wouldn't go to class. I just was like, f-ing, "Why do I want to be here?" And uh, and then I got I got kicked out and sent to a a trade school, a vocational school down the road. Uh, because they basically told me you were never going to graduate high school your marks are horrible you needed at the end of 10th grade you should have 16 credits i had seven uh that's accumulated from nine and ten i had seven credits so when i went to the other school i knew it was a really rough school it had a really tough reputation there was a lot of a lot of badasses in that school and i uh and I told my dad, I go, I'm kind of scared about going to the school. And one of my good friends, Willie Blackburn, who I grew up with, was a boxer. And he was like, yo, my dad was like, go to the gym with Willie. Go learn how to fight. Because my dad used to box in India. He was like, just go learn how to fight. So I started boxing at 15, and, and that completely changed my life. It gave me a confidence that I never knew I had, and, uh, and I never got beat up again. Christopher Titus once told me something about his philosophy
0: when he was growing up about never getting beat up again or bullied again. Yeah. His philosophy was, if a guy bullies you, he messes with you. Rear back and punch him as hard as you can in the face. Absolutely. Then you get your ass kicked harder than you've ever gotten kicked in your life by him and his
1: friends, but then they will never with you again. It's true. It's true. 100% true. I uh, I never ever got beat up again after that. It was amazing. And the, <clears throat> the funny thing is, the school full of all the badasses was the best place I'd ever been. All the badasses loved me for... Because... Uh, They weren't bullies. They weren't... The the other high school had a bunch of bullies in it. Had the jocks and had the cool guys, the popular people, and all those douchebags. Mine had people with um uh, uh emotional problems and and uh and and uh, behavioral problems and broken homes and all this kind of stuff and they weren't worried about you they were so worried about themselves they didn't give a shit about what was what what you what they were all cool so that high school i went there for 11 and 12 i ended up becoming class president in, tw- in 12th grade and uh subsequently to to cut ahead uh, a few years um A few years ago, I I went back to that high school and started a scholarship uh, to help the kids that are in that school because everybody in that school is from a a far lower income type of family situation. And uh, and if you go to that school and you graduate, it doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? I graduated from there and it didn't matter. I couldn't even go to community college because I had to go for academic upgrading if I wanted to go to even community college. So I was like, I'm not going to do this. And then I realized, you know, there's kids there that want to do things and I am an inspiration to them because I'm from there and uh, they see what I've done and I don't want them to think, Oh, he, he was here and he forgot about us. No, I want you to know, I know where I came from. So I started a scholarship that gives uh, a student $20,000 to get into college and, and do what they need to do. Awesome. Yeah. You can't, I mean, you can't hang on to the, to, to how you felt as a kid. I mean, you have to let it go. It either, it either drives you crazy or, or it motivates you. And I took, and somebody once told me at a very young age, they said, "You know, Russell, the only way to get revenge is is success." And I never understood them when they said it. I, all I was thinking about was, how about I beat their face in with a bat. And uh, <laughs> but then uh, no, I I understand that now. So you know, you you deal with all that, and then uh, and to cut back now to uh, eighty five. Breakdancing died, and, uh, and so did my dreams of becoming a professional breakdancer. And I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I loved this music called hip-hop. And the only way I would hear it was when I was b-boying, when I was breakdancing, I would hear all the hip-hop, and, and we would get tapes sent in, mixtapes, and we would get the music from however. But I wanted to be the guy that got the music and made the music, so I started DJing in 1985. And the first two records that I got were doubles were called The Show by Dougie Fresh. And uh, that was the first time I started scratching records back and forth. And that really changed my life, too, because then I became the cool guy who you wanted the new music from. Go see Russell. He'll hook it up for you. So there was that. And then I had the boxing. Can and I ask then,
0: you a personal question? Yeah.
1: When did you lose your virginity? Oh, I was 18. I lost my virginity at 18. Did you use humor to get laid? I, here's the thing. I, I wasn't A, I wasn't ready to get laid. Who, I wasn't even who, thinking who about is? it. Who is? No, I. but I wasn't even thinking about it. I'll tell you exactly what happened. The first time I got laid, she was uh, on top of me, riding away. Wait, before you get into that, did you know that it was going to happen. No, I didn't even think about it. So it wasn't even so on my radar. The, I was a very late bloomer. So in other words, she was in control that night. Oh, she wanted it. And 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 she's the one who was like, "Yeah." How was old like, was she? Same age. Got same age as me. Okay, keep and, going. I'm sorry and, to interrupt. And and I always say, uh, you know how you know you're ready to have sex uh, cuz you'll come right away. Cuz you're so excited that it's like, "Oh, I'm sorry." That's how you know you're ready. I didn't come she's on top of me riding me for about an hour and I'm sure she's thinking well this guy's a champ but I'm like all I kept thinking about was I can't wait for her to leave so I could jerk off about this that's all I (laughs) kept thinking (laughs) I was so into jerking off I was like this is great but my hand is so much better than this right now (laughs) that's amazing so you didn't use the humor to get her she just wanted you yeah I don't know what her deal was she was a really pretty girl uh, light skinned black girl with green eyes and Uh, and uh, it was it was a good time I mean I didn't really I I didn't care for it to be honest with you I never really got sexually uh, uh, proficient until my mid 20s I would say and then that's when I started to figure out okay I like this now I like the way this is and then you know as you get older you get better at it the older you get the the you, you, you learn how to do better things with less moves it's like a boxer Everything is boxing in my head, you know? So uh, basically, now when you sleep with a girl, it's the rope a dope. Yeah. You're like, all right, you're tired? Bam. And there it is. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So,
0: how did you figure out that you wanted to do stand up comedy? And when did you get your first chops on stage? And and who brought you there? And
1: like, how did it all come about? All right, here we go. So, uh, graduated high school in 1988. Uh, I started working with my cousin who was doing, uh, he was putting these rain shields on the gas meters on every house. And he had, he was subcontracted to do it. He was paying me 10 bucks an hour, which was great money back then. 1988, 10 bucks an hour. We were making a fortune. And him and I would walk through all these houses doing this all day. And we would have to knock on the back door and be like, hey, consumers gas, we're here to put a rain shield on your meter. And we had to yell that out before we walked in their backyard. And then I would start just saying random. To be like, consumer's gas, we're here to shit on your lawn. And just, I like, just kept doing this all day. And my cousin was laughing. He was like, oh, my God, you're hilarious. And I was like, I, I got bored with it. And so I just kept doing things to try and make me excited about it. And then my other cousins would tell me, you know, you're really funny. You should do stand-up. And I never thought about it. I remember seeing Eddie Murphy in concert in 1986 at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. It was 86 or 87. And uh, it was the uh, Raw tour, but it was called Pieces of My Mind. And I still have the t-shirt to this day from that show. And I remember sitting in there going, Oh my God. What, I only I didn't know about comedy clubs. What venue did he play in? Maple Leaf Gardens is where the Toronto. So Maple he played Leafs in the, the arena there. Yeah. And I remember sitting there going, Wow, I saw Kiss here, and now I'm seeing Eddie Murphy here. So in my head, the only way you could do comedy was in an arena, because that's the only way I'd seen it. I didn't know about comedy clubs. I didn't know that existed. All the comics I listened to were. These arena guys, Steve Martin, George Carlin, Cheech and Chong, these were like the biggest names in the game. And uh, and I was like, I guess that's the only way you can do it. So I was like, oh, I'm never going to be able to do this. So I'm just a fan of it at this point. And my cousins told me I should go do stand-up. And uh, in 1989, I told my brother, because at some point you need to come up with a plan in life. And, uh, and my brother was like, well, what do you want to do? And I go, I don't know. I mean, I love DJing, but there's better DJs. And at that time you had to have your own records and I had my own records, but there was guys who had more records and better records and doubles of records, you know? And, uh, and then I was like, I love DJing, but you know, that's not really paying the bills. I do that on the weekends. And then, uh, I, um, I, uh, I was boxing, but that was just for fun to learn how to fight. And, um, I told my brother I wanted to do comedy. My cousin Andrew said, I should be a comedian. So my brother said, All right, you want to do comedy? Uh, <clears throat> have you seen comedy? And I said, I have not seen actually seen comedy live. Now, your brother Clayton. My brother Clayton, my only brother. The one who was 10, taking you around when you were four. That is right. And here we are at uh, 18, and he's, uh, you know, 24 years old now. And he's like, oh, Let me take you so you can see some comedy. What was he doing at the time? I,
0: I honestly and I mention don't this because for those you don't know, Clayton is a big part of your life. And Absolutely. he's your manager and he's your producing partner. He's your tour guy. He's the guy who helps you run the whole juggernaut that is your brand. Right. And I think it's just an amazing relationship that you have. And he's an incredible
1: guy. And I just want to note that's the fans yeah. in the audience who don't know that. So yeah. keep going. I'm sorry. So uh, my brother took me to go see theater sports. Um, cause you know, I didn't, I didn't know anything about comedy and I, and I remember seeing theater sports going, wow, these guys are good. And then he took me to Yuck Yucks on a, on an amateur night to go see what comics were doing. And I remember laughing all night. I was like, wow, this is really good. And, and I think the best way to get into comedy is only to watch amateurs guys. You're going to be working with all you need to do is be better than that guy in order to move forward don't look at a, a guy who's been doing it forever <clears throat> guys that have hours behind them you're never gonna you're not gonna learn anything that way you're only gonna learn when you figure out your voice and uh that's a mistake i made that i told
0: uh, the story on another show with dave chappelle when I represented him. I- I took him to see Charlie Barnett, who was the greatest street performer of all time and used to perform in the park at Washington Square Park in front of 500 people in the dry fountain in -hmm. the round, like a mini arena. Yep. And I took Dave when he was a teenager to see Charlie, and Charlie did like a four-hour show. And after about an hour and a half, I couldn't find Dave, and he was walking away, and, (laughs) and I ran after him, and I tapped him on the shoulder and he turned around and he was crying and he said why the did you take me here man i said well i wanted you to see one of the best comedians that i've ever seen a guy who's just amazing works without a mic he said well you shouldn't have taken me here i'm never gonna be as funny as that guy and i said not only are you gonna be as funny as that guy You're going to be closing after him at the Boston Comedy Club this weekend, (laughs) and you will be. And here's the interesting switch, okay? After that weekend, Charlie, this this is in the 90s, like early 90s. After that weekend, Charlie Barnett, who was a public figure, but a drug addict and homeless who never, ever did laundry, just... Got money from a show, bought new clothes, and gave his clothes to a homeless person. That's how it worked. He would so genuinely I, recycle life. Yeah. And I would get into the office early in New York. I had an office at 57th and Broadway. And I remember one day, I it was a knock at the door at like 8.30 in the morning. And it was Charlie. And you could tell he'd been walking around all night long. I said, Charlie, what are you doing here? He said, listen, uh, can, I, can I watch a videotape of Dave Chappelle? I said, sure, uh, I'll put you in the room. I'll pop the tape in. I popped the tape and I went in my office and I could hear it playing over and over again, you know. And um, he walks into my office and he's sort of like misty-eyed, Charlie is, like sort of like has that look, his eyes are watering. And I said, Charlie, are you okay? What's the matter? And he said... I'm never gonna be as funny as that kid (laughs) I mean I don't trust my material I'm always shouting and yelling and jumping around and he has the confidence to just stand there and plant his feet and tell those stories and sometimes the stories go a minute long before the punchline and he's comfortable in the silence until the punchline I just can't do that I'm I, I can never be like that so it came full circle very fascinating I, that,
1: what you just said. That that's it's what happens in life, you know. It's Absolutely. Fun. And I, I I saw guys that I was like, man, they were that guy's really good. And then you know you reflect now and you go, that oh, guy was really terrible, but I just didn't know what I was capable of doing. So when do you go up? I go up. Uh, my brother takes me around in September of eighty nine, and uh, in late September I turned nineteen, and then I said, it, I'm going to do it. And so I started in November of nineteen eighty nine. I went up my first, you get five minutes? I think I honestly must have done no more than two and a half. Two and a half to three is what I did. I was so scared. Three to four minutes you did. No way. (laughs) That would have been a long set for me. I'm kidding. And I I, uh, got a couple of giggles. I didn't by any means kill. And nor did I get laughter. I got a couple of giggles, and that's all it took for me to go, how can I flip those giggles into laughter? And I went again. Uh, Went up again for the second time and I still did shorter than the time I should have done but I had a much better set and then it just started getting better and better until I started figuring it out and uh, here we are in 2014 on my 25th anniversary tour called Almost Famous and and uh, you know you never stop learning in this game that's the beautiful thing about stand-up you are never doesn't matter who you are really literally doesn't matter who you are you're never above bombing. When's the last time you bombed? I mean, really, March. really bombed. March of this year. What happened? I was in England. Uh, it was the uh, GQ comedy issue because I obviously can't get into the American one, so I got into the <laughs> UK one because <laughs> I'm 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 a I'm, uh, I'm relatively uh, I'm an unknown in America, but I can still sell out Madison Square Garden. So apparently, I don't know what their basis for unknown is, but whatever. Um, I uh, I was in the UK comedy issue of GQ. They did a comedy night to support it, to sport it. And they had about 14 comics on. And I had said, I would like to go in the middle because I know England very well. And I know that's a long time to be going on after comics. But they're like, no, you're the special guest. You should go on at the end. And I'm like, uh, oh. uh, I figured it was GQ. So I dressed nice. Uh, I figured it's GQ magazine. It's a, it's a men's fashion magazine. I'm going to dress fly. So I wore a red velvet jacket with a white, crispy white dress shirt and nice shoes and, and nice, like a tuxedo pant almost. And I was feeling pretty fly. I was feeling really good about myself, the way I looked. And all the comics went on schlubby. T-shirt, jeans, sneakers. I was like, ugh. And, and, and by no means was anybody like made me go, oh, my God, that guy's killing. I was like, oh, my God, I could do better than that guy in my head. Because as you know, and
0: for those of you listening, when you do an industry night where there's not a specific night for comedy, it's something that's arranged by a corporation that is putting a night together that doesn't know anything about comedy. Mm Mm-hmm. There's always going to be a crowd in there that doesn't really laugh that hard and they're more interested
1: in how they look in the crowd and how the socialness of it is. Yeah, and but they had sold tickets. This is at the Hammersmith Apollo, so there's about you know, a couple thousand people, mm-hmm. if not two to three thousand people there. And uh I was on last and I went out and from the second I walked out, you could feel them stare at me like, Who the f does this guy I think he is? You know, England has that uh He's not like us. He he thinks he's above us, and I'm like, no, it's not what I think. Because they, they gave me this really nice intro, and I'm like, and I walk out, and there was like, you know, you could just see the look on their face, like fuck him." It was genuinely a fuck you" from the audience. And, and how much uh, time did you have to do? Fifteen to twenty, I think. And I just, I just, I ate it and ate it further and ate it further and just and started becoming combative almost to a point, you know, where you you just go "f**k it, f**k you." You know what I mean? It was, and it just turned it turned into a show for me. I, I think Malaysian Airlines had just gone down uh, missing at that point. It had been a week. And I remember saying, uh, um, Malaysian Airlines, I said something about like, because uh, Liam Neeson movie came out that time too. And I said, where was Malaysian Airlines, where was Liam Neeson on that plane? And, and they were just like, how dare you? And I'm like, come on for. Sakes, we still haven't found the plane. But you know, England's one of those really quirky places where they love to bring down the person they perceive as on top. And in all those little blogs out there, like, and he tanked, and it was the worst set I've ever seen in my life, and all these reviewers, and I'm like, oh Jesus Christ! You know, the ironic part is, I'm still gonna go back there, and I'm still gonna go to the O2 Arena, and it's still gonna be sold out. So whatever the you say about me is irrelevant. That's not my crowd. Which is, is, not a, is not an excuse for a comic to ever say that. That's not my crowd. It's true. That's not my crowd. But as a comic, it's my job to make that crowd laugh. And uh, you can never go, oh, well, it's not my crowd. But it, it, they were just against me. And, and, I, and, I, and I'm sure I must have come out uh, with a certain amount of arrogance or an overconfidence about me that I didn't uh, deservedly bring. There's a prevailing philosophy in comedy
0: that it's the responsibility mm-hmm. of the comedian no matter what the obstacle to do well so now let's clean the slate Yep. let's pretend you know what you know now about the audience mm-hmm.
1: and you get to go on again i would still would you kill uh i would not kill but i would have changed my outfit knowing what I known I would have dressed more uh, working class friendly I guess would be the way to say it um and I would have approached it differently I, I still won't wouldn't say I would kill but I would have done a lot better Um, There is still a a great amount of racism in this world, uh, whether we want to admit it or not. And England is one of those places where it very much prevails still. There's a resentment towards a lot of people in England, uh, towards Indian people especially. There's so many. We're so deep-rooted there now. And uh, they've got all the other immigrants coming in from all these other countries. But the funny thing is, England needs to remember, they... Went around the world and did this to themselves first. You're the one who went and taught everybody English. You created the situation, so don't get mad when the chickens come home to roost. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great example. <laughs> That's great. I've never heard it
0: put that way before. <laughs> so, all right. So you're you're pounding the pavement. You're doing it. You're starting to work the comedy club circuit. I'm sure you did the yuck yuck circuit I did, several times.
1: So in the '90s, uh, I would I was on amateur night for I was on amateur night for 5 years before they pulled me off amateur night and I remember just being frustrated with it because not to toot my own horn but I was killing at that time with with the stuff I had uh, obviously I look back at and go this the stuff was terrible but at the time it was killing so it didn't really matter um and I was watching guys who weren't doing well at all just moving forward and I'm like how is this happening why is this happening what am I doing wrong here <laughs> And I would leave Yuck Yucks periodically and go and do the uh, outside circuit they used to call it. If you weren't with Yucks, you were on the outside. And I would go to the outside and those were road gigs, hell gigs, but I was having a great time because I was doing something I loved. And I would literally travel, to no exaggeration, about 300 miles for a $70 gig or a $50 gig. And at the time I was just like, well, I'd probably be here talking for free why not travel there and get 50 or 70 bucks and, and a free motel and, and maybe some free appetizers off their menu and, and I was like I'll just use the money for gas as long as I'm not out I'm good as long as I don't lose money I'm good so I really justified it to myself back then and I was doing what I loved doing and it didn't even occur to me that I was you know being pimped or what have you because I, 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 I just loved what I was doing and I loved the fact that I was I felt like I was making movements I was, I was making strides I was doing something that nobody that looked like me had done before and uh, and my dad used to tell me very early on in my career you're never gonna make it in this business this this is this is a black white and Jewish dominated game and you're none of those people and I so your
0: dad who came home from work every day with blood on his clothes smelling of meat Mm -hmm. working hard in the factory yep to make sure we had something told
1: you You were never going to make it. You're never going to make it in this business. They don't want us in this business. And that comes from my dad's heartbreak of wanting to be a writer. And my dad wrote amazingly uh, to the point where he submitted a bunch of things to the newspaper, one of the newspapers in Toronto, to be a freelance writer for them. And they had said um, they saw his name, Eric Peters, and they're like, oh, come on in. We'd love to meet with you. And uh, the minute he walked in, they were like, oh, because my dad was a darker skinned guy. He was, you know, darker than I am. And, uh, and I don't he, consider you. Dark well, I'm a brown skin. guy. And my dad was a darker brown guy. And uh, as soon as my dad walked in, they like, oh, jobs filled. They didn't even care about anything. They just saw him, and they were like, eh. So my dad wanted me to avoid that heartbreak that he felt at that point. That was his motivation for yeah, saying that. Yeah, it was just like I don't want you to feel like how I felt.
0: Let's reverse the roles. Mm-hmm. You have your first son. I have a daughter. I know, That's but a, I'm just saying your
1: your first son. I don't want a boy. But go on. I don't think you want. <laughs> I, I, I would guess you don't want your daughter to do comedy. It's a tough business as, a, as it is for a guy. But uh, you know, it's funny as my daughter just knows that I hold a microphone for a living. When oh. I talk to her, I go, she go, where are you, Daddy? I'm at work. Are you holding a microphone? That's what she knows. And then when she's in my bedroom, she'll stand at the fireplace mantel. <clears throat> and I bought her a little Dora the Explorer microphone. Uh-huh. And she'll stand there on the mantel I. I go, what are you doing, baby? I'm doing Daddy at work. <laughs> so, And she goes, Daddy, I want to be on stage. I go, no, I don't want you to be on stage. Come on. Don't do this to me. <laughs> so let's say she
0: comes to you and says... At the age you were mm-hmm. and says listen I want to do stand-up comedy this is what I want to do are you gonna to say to her what your father said to you no not at all what are you gonna say well if she's
1: if she's genuinely exactly the way it, you were um, I, I will have to encourage her I can't you know but I'm also not gonna be the father that encourages somebody to do something they're not good at you know I, I like but a, your father knew you were good He, he saw, I'm sure he saw the spark in my eyes and how it made me feel and, but he didn't want me to get disappointed. Now, the difference is we're financially in different places, you know, she could go and try it. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't really matter. She owns a shitload of real estate now. (laughs) Everything is in her name. you know what I mean? So, um, it's a different way of looking at it. So tell me the moment where everything changed in your life. And was it planned or was it an accident? Um, I think everything took a shift in my life and in my career. In 1995, <clears throat> I had done my first comedy special in Canada. It was a TV show called Comics, and you got um, you got 30 minutes on TV. 22, in all fairness. And then and once they cut it down because they would do comedy, and then you'd write your own sketches and do those too. Uh, I was 24 years old when I shot it. Um, this was uh, I think one year after the internet had started and all of a sudden when my show aired uh, the CBC got inundated with fan mail and emails and all this and girls sending pictures of themselves and stuff because I, I was a 25 year old punk kid you know on TV and I was doing all these racial ethnic jokes and sketches and stuff and <clears throat> and uh, and then we were, they were also getting hate mail at the same time regarding it and the CBC even had said this is we've never seen this happen before this is you have struck a chord with people I don't know if you know it's a good thing or a bad thing but uh, um, this is amazing and then and and I I became that guy all of a sudden people knew my name and people were sending me things that I you know and girls just hitting me up and I'm like this is awesome I love this And, uh, and and then cut to 1997 uh, there's another series called Comedy Now and they offered me uh, a special and uh They'd pay me ten grand at that time. I was like, "Wow!" I remember I got a ten grand from them, and I got, I think ten or fifteen grand from some sort of weird holding deal that I had at that time. Thirteen to seventeen five. Yeah, thirteen to seventeen five. <laughs> and uh, and I had this chunk of cash all of a sudden, and I'd never had money in my life ever, and I went and bought a Lexus. <laughs> <laughs> it was ninety seven. I went and bought a a nineteen ninety five ES three hundred. It was black with the gold package, tan leather interior. I was so fly. I love that car. But I remember after buying that car, I was like, oh, my God, I'm broke again. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember being with Dave Chappelle. In Toronto when he was shooting, half-baked. That's and I right. had my Lexus. And I was like, uh, I, I actually said this to Dave. I was like, man, I am struggling to make this car payment. I was kind of hinting at, would you lend me money? And Dave just said to me, who the f*** told you to buy a Lexus? <laughs> and I was like, you're true. Touche. Touche. You know what kind game. of car he used to rent what? in L.A. when he came? What? A Lexus. Of course. <laughs> I remember Dave saying things back then, like ah, after this movie, I'm going to treat myself to a Mercedes, and and I, it was the first time I'd seen somebody with money just doing things. I was like, ah, I got to do this. I got to treat myself to things one day when I earn it. But I think that's the thing that a lot of
0: people who are listening they people do different things. Especially in our <laughs> profession. But for me, I was always the kind of guy that if I made something, I wanted to either invest in myself, my company, or I wanted to do something that was going to make me happy. Mm-hmm. Because there's this old expression that your parents probably said, you know, you came here with nothing and you can leave with nothing if you want to. As long as you're happy and you go for whatever you want to do. Absolutely. It had no sense just hoarding all that you have and not enjoying it. Enjoy. I remember when I was doing Dave, the first development deal he got, the first check, he said, Listen, let's go down to Melrose in Los Angeles And he said, I've heard about this place I wanna take you to And it was Fred Siegel. Yep. The one with the Ivy on it, on Melrose. And he walked in, and I'm just walking around because I literally have, you know, wooden nickel. That's all I have to my name back then. I have nothing because I'm traveling back and forth, and I'm putting everything I can into the business. People thought I was a millionaire, but I had nothing. (laughs) And um, he went in, and he bought a leather a jacket, like sort of similar to this, only it was like a, um, a it was sports jacket. It was real leather. Thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's I is that know. real leather, I, Barry? I,
1: I, I, it's it's probably pleather. Come on, let me feel that thing. It's probably uh, that is one hundred percent pleather. Pleather. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely uh, Hindu it. friendly. Do you do that <laughs> on purpose? <or? laughs> Well, I, if I, there's I, any vegans in the room, just know that Barry's not wearing any form of leather at all right now. He is vegan friendly. Well, you know,
0: I was gonna wear my red velvet jacket and my white fluffy shirt. <laughs> you but son of a bitch!
1: How dare you? You'll bomb in that outfit. <laughs> this is my vegetarian vegan outfit here. This is uh, shoes but, are made out of green peppers.
0: <laughs> uh, but thank you so much for letting people know that uh, I'm wearing six dollars worth of clothing
1: on. Thank you. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and that's $6 in 2007, because clearly it has not been updated. That's, that, that is correct. I don't mind being the brunt of your jokes.
0: It's all good. He's a thrifty man, is all I'm saying. I love Lamore <laughs> Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> I love thrift shops. <laughs> so, so anyway, I was saying, Dave won this thing, he bought this jacket, and I said, wow, that looks beautiful. How much was that? And he said it was $1,600. And I was like, sixteen hundred dollars for a jacket? And he's like, Yeah, man. Wanna treat myself. And I said, Well, you deserve it, man. You deserve it. And you deserve the Lexus. So how did you get to the next level where now you could pay for the Lexus? I what would... happened where everything went really
1: <laughs> Well, it still never got great. I would just take any gig that came to me, uh, whether it was driving, flying, what have you. And I would always be between at that point, I would be between England and Canada. And uh, and at that time, also, the uh, the British pound is worth two and a half times more than the Canadian dollar so for a gig of 500 pounds maybe for a week or something that turns into almost 1500 bucks for me i was like this is amazing so i would just stay in england and gig all over the place and from england you would get sent to ireland you would get sent to belgium you would get sent to hong kong dubai singapore i'd started going around the world at that point i was in hong kong the first time i was there in 99 and it was right before a handover where they they handed it back to the chinese and it was a it was a wild time. I'd never thought I'd ever be in these places, and I wasn't making bank. I, nobody was coming to the shows to see me. They were just coming. Oh, there's a comedy night at the Viceroy Restaurant. Uh, some guy named a uh, guy named John Moorhead, who lived in Hong Kong, would book all these gigs, and he would get it subsidized by uh, the the air the airlines would you know sponsor it, so they would give us free economy flights, and and I didn't care. I was you know I was in these tiny ass little hotel rooms, and but I'm in Hong Kong, you know what I mean, and I'm, get, I'm getting a hundred pounds or two hundred pounds to do this show. I would justify it in my head by like, well, that's five hundred bucks in Canada. That's way more than I'd be getting right now, so I'm pretty happy here. You know, it's all about making things relative, and uh, and and uh, making the trip. Yeah, making the trip. Just you got to do it. You just got to do it. I went to Dubai and in '99 as well or 2000, and that's when Dubai was pretty much still half desert. You know. And, uh, it I was, a, it was amazing. I I started really figuring out the world and I started having gone there and, and at that time you'd only be playing to expats, you know what I mean? So I wasn't playing like to the Chinese when I was in Hong Kong, I was playing to all these, uh, expat Canadian, American, British, they were all in the audience, you know, they were like, Oh, finally something from home is here, you know? And, uh. Cut to now when I go there, I'm playing for the Chinese and the Arabs and the the real people from those areas. And the expats will show up too, but I've actually touched a nerve with the people that are native to those lands. So tell our audience what happened
0: to get you to reach such a wide audience how did it all happen we're all familiar with the story of like let bill burr where he's at a philadelphia show and he's getting booed off the stage and everybody's getting booed off the stage and he fights back on stage fights back and somebody (laughs) films the last five minutes (laughs) it goes viral and he actually becomes a huge star that we know he should have been and could have been with his great material and his great persona, but for some reason it wasn't happening up to that point, and that
1: thing made it happen. What yep. was the thing for you that made it? The happen? thing that for me was I shot a special in August of two thousand and three. It was comedy now, and at the time I was broke, 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 like in debt broke and uh, they paid me 7500 dollars this time. Uh that was the reason I told you why they paid me 10,097 for the same special in 2003 for some reason it had gone down to 7500. I guess my stock had dropped and you know I'd <laughs> proved to be a flop or I guess at that point or what have you whatever the case may be. Uh, it was less money but I was so broke I was like I got to do this. I'm dead ass in the water. I did the special they paid me my $7,500 I literally remember signing the check and giving it away because and I was still broke and I was still in debt a little bit but not as much I was $7,500 less in debt and uh and it was just 2003 uh my father was sick with cancer and uh I I was broke. I, I thought I was going to be doing a movie in New York in September, and that fell through. So I didn't book any work for October, and September. So I, and my brother and I were living in a townhouse that we had bought together in uh, just outside of Toronto, and my brother had to cover the mortgage for the next few months because I had no money coming in, and he could see the disappointment in my face, and I felt like everything was just falling apart at that point, and I took a. Uh, took another run at south africa in october where i knew i was popular but i had to take it for money and hotel and air flare and stuff like that but i had to do it because I, I needed money so i pimped myself out to south africa at that point cut to february 2004 when they air the special and for some reason this one struck a chord again and um i didn't really think much of it you know i mean it was the material i was doing at the time and it was you know it was good solid material but i i had you know nobody telling me hey ross you're doing a great job i didn't really have many allies in the game and um so it airs in february 2004 youtube starts i think around june of 2004 Wasn't that it? Yeah. Yeah. YouTube starts in June of 2004. Somebody uploads my special onto YouTube, which I know none of uh, this world. I still don't know how to upload to this day. And, uh, and, and it got sent around the world. And I'll give an example of what happened in February of 2004. I played DePaul university in Chicago. Uh, I got 700 bucks and 13 people came to the show. I still did the show. I did the full show. I think I did an hour and change, and it was a great show, and I almost felt guilty for taking the seven hundred bucks because nobody showed up, but I needed the money, so I had to do it. Right, and uh, you cut to November of two thousand four. I go back to Chicago. I'm playing some theater for three nights, and I'm making around forty fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> so, from January, uh, from February to November, something happened, and I think the something was YouTube in June that really just changed my entire trajectory. And in that one year, how many? People had downloaded that YouTube video. Uh, You know, I didn't know about checking it at all back then, but it went into the millions. Millions. And it started getting chopped up into uh, whatever race I was talking about and sent to those people. So I was getting uh, hit up from Italy because, hey, we love that joke you did about Italians. And then Jamaica. Hey, we, we love that joke. And, you know, the Chinese and the Indians and everybody just started. I was like, what's going on? I still didn't figure it out. I couldn't figure it out. I was like, I don't know what's happening. But my father passed away in March of 2004, and everything started happening shortly after my dad passed away. And I always felt like, you know, I don't I don't believe in religion of any kind, uh, but I do believe that people that love you on this earth, when they go on to the other side, they will go and do what they can to protect you. And uh, I, that's what I genuinely feel like happened. My dad died, and then he kind of pulled some strings for me. It's great stuff, man. That's just unbelievable. Sometimes what
0: happens is to a lot of artists, when they become big and things start going forward, the worst shit happens to them. Right, And they just, you know, nothing you would want more than to have your dad see the success that you've had in the past 10 years. Right. And you have no control over it and the world just takes them away from you. It's like the most brutal thing because it's like... You want to share that with your family. That's all
1: you want. Yeah, you do. But I I, I kind of had this weird um, closure with my dad when he died. I was in the room with him when he passed away in the hospital. And he looked at me right literally seconds before he died. And he kind of gave me a like a blink because he couldn't really move too much. He blinked at me. And it was kind of that look, that look of, I'll see you. And then he went. And then I, I was the only one in the room other than the nurses so I had this weird like connection I mean I was not weird it's my father you know what I mean but but it was that kind of weird moment where I was like something we just shared something that I can't put my finger on and uh and then things just changed after that so I never felt like oh he never got to see it I kind of always to this day still feel like he's right there watching it we're on this ride together you know I may not be able to see him but I know he's there he is there all right, let's ride off into the sunset here, and let's talk
0: about a few things right. before we go off. Tell me three comedians who
1: nobody really knows that well that you think are extraordinary. <clears throat> There's a guy in Canada. I don't. I don't think he's here anymore. I think he lives in England. But Stuart Francis was uh, is a phenomenal. That guy makes. Do you know who he is? I, I know of him, but he, I don't know. Very him that very well. funny guy. Um Jeremy Hotz is also a ridiculously talented comic. I mean, I've I've known Jeremy for 25 years <clears throat> and I've never ever seen him have a less than spectacular set. And I, it's I, one of those things where I'm like I don't understand what this guy has to do to become more famous like it's he's so funny. Well, I'm going to
0: tell you what I think. Okay. Not that you want to hear it. Yeah, I want to hear it when he started off, he was doing straight Mm stand-up. Now, he'd do some things like the uh, Russian weight lifter bit, which you probably don't remember I do. I've I've known him forever. (laughs) Yeah. But the thing is, then he started doing a character. And when you do a character, it's very dangerous. Because in success, it can take you to the highest levels, but you rise, and you fall, and then you stabilize. But... If you don't get to that success with that character the way you want it to, you're locked in forever, and
1: it's hard to get out. But in all fairness, the character really is him. He is that guy. He's not very far off from what you see on stage. the whiny, complainy kind of crazy guy, that's actually who he is. I agree, but I think it's accentuated more than... Absolutely.
0: Like, I would say if I were to put him in a category of how far he goes with the character, I'd say he's <laughs> as close to a character, a comic in the in, in New York and the country, Mitch Fittell. Yeah, I'd say he has that kind of thing. It's not 100% like Larry the Cable Guy, but it's like 33%. Mm-hmm. And who's the third comedian? that you respect and really think is going to be great
1: and big. Well, I, I don't know if they're going to be big. Or who you like or who you respect. Well, i tell you who will, will be huge and is ridiculously talented is Gerard Carmichael. Absolutely. That kid is a beast. Absolutely. And let me tell you what a sweetheart of a kid that guy is. Absolutely. He's, he's just a great human being and uh and he's so funny, dude. Like, I, I have him. I'll call him, and I'll be like, yo, I'm doing a show. Do you want to come to a spot? Yeah, he'll show up, and he'll do it. And show I'm just, up. And I just, I sit there. I literally marvel at him. I'm like, that is incredible. Yeah. The he, kid's, what, 26, 27? He's really special. He's uh, he's, he's one, the next Chappelle, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah, he's one that comes <clears throat> along uh, very, very few and far between it's, over it's the years. It's crazy to watch if you had to have a rating scale or if you looked at all the comics out there on the landscape, tell me somebody who you feel or a few comedians who you feel, these guys are where I am comedically. I'm not talking about the draw. I'm not talking about the whatever. Just you look and you say, okay, these guys are in my circle. And tell me the people who you look at and you say, I don't think
1: I'm ever going to get to be as funny as those guys. I think it's easier for me to tell you that than it is the other one. Okay. Um, there's, you know, the louis the, the Bill Burr's, the uh, Tell's, the Chappelle's, the Rock's. Those are all the guys that I go. I will never get, like, they are, to me, they're geniuses when I watch them. And uh, I wish I could write like that. And sometimes I do write like them, but because of whatever notion is uh, bestowed on me from people when they uh, prejudge, they just they they uh, poo poo you, they they write it off. Eh, You know, but I've said things that those guys have said before they've said them. And nobody paid attention. But when they said them, I'm like, oh, these guys are brilliant. I go, I think they're brilliant, too. But I'm not saying I, I've i written that joke before and, and I actually recorded it and did it. Not the same joke, but in the same tone of where it's like, well, you know, when you're the golden child, um, you can do no wrong. I think it's a kind of a good place that I'm in that I'm just under the radar enough that people either pay my fans pay attention and uh the people that pay attention don't pay attention to me so it's a it's a double-edged sword for me um i don't really know what i'm talking about anymore to be honest with you but
0: uh, (laughs) well you're the only comedian who performs in all these different countries how do you gear your comedy to like you go to hong kong and do a show then you go to dubai to do a show then you go to the o2 arena in london you can't possibly do the exact same routine you pretty much do
1: um that's Ray Ray. He's one of my security guys. He's on all the tours with us. We I do the same act in every country. Obviously, you modify certain things here and there don't say this there, say this there, uh, you know, and, and vice versa. So, you know, there's subtle changes. It's like buying a car, you know, you can buy the same car in any country, but some countries don't allow you to have, uh, uh, certain features that other countries do. So, you know, you modify and you make it, you adapt, you know, tell me a holy shit moment story,
0: something that no one has heard. That's the craziest okay thing that you could anybody could ever imagine
1: that you went through that you can share with our audience um i would say maybe uh two years ago we were in dubai and uh it was we were doing three nights there at the uh, world trade center um it was a i think it was eight or nine thousand people a show um they were sold out all three shows were sold out after the first night um we, I do my act. I do. I don't ever change my act. If if your country tells me that I have to, I can't say this and I can't say that. I'm not coming to your country. That's just the way it is. I, I'm not going to be told how to how to do what I do. And I, you know, it's not that important to me that I go there. It's more important to you that I go there than it is for me. So I did my show, and I performed in Dubai about five or six times in the past. Before that, and I'd never been told what to say or what not to say my brother gets a call the next day from somebody from the CID, which is some sort of the, uh, like, uh, decency police, you know what I mean? And the guy says, look, uh, your brother can't, uh, he can't say this and he can't say that. And he's, and he can't make sexual uh, gestures and he can't say, uh, this, and he's got to watch that. And, and if he does any of these things, we'll shut the mic off on him. And we've shut it off on ACON before. And I go, first of all, don't put me in the same category as Akon. I was like, you know, I don't want to, that's not the company I want to be in. All right. Nobody's going to look back in time and go, remember ACON? No, nobody's going to do that. Um, so my brother goes, calls me, and he's like, listen, uh, I met with the CID guy, and they're pretty serious about um, what you say and what you don't say. And I said, well, well, I'm not. I, I'm not going to do the show. I cancel the show. Em. I'm not doing it. And then uh, my brother goes, "Really?" And I go, "Yeah, I'm not going to be told what to say and what not to say, especially since I performed here so many times before and said anything I wanted to say. You can't change the rules in the middle of the game." And uh, so my brother goes, "All right, give me a minute." And then while my brother's waiting, <clears throat> we get a call. From the royal family. The royal family, one of the royal families of Dubai uh, calls, a representative calls us and says, uh, Some of the royal family were in the audience last night at your show and they loved it. And they went home and told the rest of the family how much they enjoyed the show. We need 15 tickets to tonight's show. <laughs> so we go, Wow, what, really? Okay. So my brother calls the CID guy back and says, "Hey, um we're just going to cancel the shows um because we can't abide to your rules." The guy's like, "Okay." And my brother goes, "However, you need to call the royal family." And tell them that we're canceling the show because you want him to watch what he said. Oh, no, no, no. The welfare, no, no, please uh, go do whatever you need to do. Say whatever you want to say. Uh, all of a sudden, this motherfucker's t- uh, tune changed. And apparently, that guy, the guy, uh, the the CID police that were there that night watching the show, the guy that reported me didn't speak English properly. So he didn't really understand what I was saying or doing. But you know, you make the fake f-ing gesture and he hears. F-ing and he's like, oh, this is bad. This is no good for our people. <clears throat> and, uh, so, uh, the shows went off without a hitch after that. And, uh, and then we were playing Abu Dhabi next and the, uh, royal families of each, of each city in the United Emirates, um, <laughs> they're all related, but they're, they all have this friendly rivalry, you know, it's like, they're all, it's one upmanship, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing, uh, diabolical about it. It's more of like, oh, you did that. Well, watch, I'm going to do this, you know? So... The royal family of Abu Dhabi hears about what happened in Dubai and they call us before we come to Abu Dhabi and go, we just want Russell to know he can say and do whatever he wants in <laughs> Abu Dhabi, no restrictions. <laughs> you know? it's, if you look at it, and they still do this, um, uh, uh, Emirates Airlines is out of Dubai. That's one royal family. Uh, they have that first class suite cabin, um, which is beautiful, which is what I always fly. And, uh, and now Etihad, which is the Abu Dhabi airline, which is a different royal family, uh, who was competing, obviously, with Emirates, has now a, uh, a f- like a suite that has a living room and, and your own bathroom. It's, like, ridiculous. <laughs> and I want to fly this so bad now <laughs> that I am going to bust my ass to get on that plane. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right, before I ask the final questions,
0: I know the men and the women in the audience will want to okay. know this. Mm-hmm. Tell me the fundamental differences between Canadian women and these women all over the world that come to these shows, is there something how they treat you differently? Because in some of these countries, like you said, these countries put restrictions on women. A lot of women aren't allowed to be a certain way, but you're a huge star.
1: How does it change from country to country? Um, It changes because... You know, culturally, people are different. Uh, That can't be uh, just uh, that can't be generalized to women. I mean, men and women are different in in wherever you go around the world. Uh, North America, uh, the whole Western world, so to speak, we're very free with certain things. Um, And it's not that women are oppressed in these countries uh, so much as they're just raised a different way, you know. And you could do that here. You can raise your kids that way. And they're still raised out here, but they, they have a different way of looking at things. There's a a different value system and, uh, uh so it doesn't mean they have less freedom they're they're just as free but they're just a little bit more uh, subtle about it you know there, there's things that happen in in the Middle East and in and in India and Asia and the rest of the these places where uh, the same things can happen but you have to be a little bit more discreet that's all <clears throat> it's not as flagrant got it what's your biggest disappointment professionally I honestly don't think I have any disappointments I think if anything I if you have a disappointment uh, that means you had an expectation and if you get in the entertainment business with expectations uh you should probably get out of the business because people aren't here to uh, facilitate you you're here to facilitate them and uh if I had a disappointment my disappointment would be that I I'm not a movie star but you know what whoopty shit if if that's my only complaint in the world, then you know go fuck yourself, Russell. Because uh, you've got everything else. So to me, for me to complain about anything would be absolutely asinine.
0: And one of the things I'm going to say to you, which I'm going to go toe to toe with you here for a second, okay? You're one of the few people in the world that have the resources. To put a team together to work with you to write your own movie, Mm -hmm. to hire Larry Moss like Leonardo DiCaprio does Mm -hmm. for that movie for every frame of the film, and to film the movie and finance the movie Mm -hmm. and put out the movie. You're one of the few guys in the world that can do that and create their own thing like Billy Bob Thornton did with Sling Blade. Mm -hmm. And I just want to share with you that's one of the things that I. I wish for you, and I
1: hope you think about doing, because... I, you know, I've always thought about doing that, and everybody... I understand the whole philosophy behind it, and I and I get it 100%. Because no one's bet on yourself more than you. Absolutely. But the problem is, I don't have... I don't have an idea for that yet, because... Then hire somebody that does have an idea. Yeah, you could do that. Um but you need somebody who really gets you and uh those people are few and far between as well but i, I just honestly Barry i think that cuz i think you i think you can do it and i think you will do it and i know you have an well in that's you. the thing i never say uh uh this is never going to happen I, I always say this will happen eventually and all in due time i mean but I think it's with every artist, and I and I and the reason why
0: you're sitting here, and one of the things that for this audience that's listening, it's really important because people tend to not talk to you about these things because they think like, oh well, you know, it's these are sensitive subjects. With uh, hey, you whatever. know me, I'm not a sensitive and guy, and that's right. But I just want to let the audience know that. But this is the thing: if there's a hundred percent pie of all the effort that you put into the factions of your business, mm-hmm. writing scripts working on the acting or working on the stand-up it could be argued that you spend 90% of your effort or more being the greatest stand-up comedian can be and working to be the most you know dynamic brand out there in the world you've killed yourself to do that Mm -hmm. And you've done it and you keep doing it and you're on top and you stayed on top. Now you're doing Last Comic Standing and you're associated with this brand and comedians are hearing your advice and, and, and inspiring them. And I think that I hope that you take the time to maybe say, okay, I'm gonna dedicate. more time to figuring out how I can bet on myself and create an acting vehicle for myself and finance it that's going to blow people the fuck away and show people just like that YouTube video did right. that I am a viable force and I will inspire you not just with my comedy
1: but with my acting right I agree with you 100% but it's one of those things where until that idea hits me Uh, I'm going to keep on doing what I got to do. I know that idea is out there. I just haven't stumbled across it yet. And when I do, we'll we'll pull that trigger. Awesome. Your proudest professional moment. Um, Doing the Industry Standard podcast with Barry Katz. All right. (laughs) That feels good. Uh, Now the real answer. Um, Telling Barry Katz he had a fake leather jacket (laughs) on. I'm not going to get this answer, am I? I don't know what my proudest professional moment is. I mean, I think uh, being around and being relevant still 25 years later, is. I mean, I don't know how much prouder I can get with that. And the fact that I force myself to come up with a new hour and a half every couple of years and the fact that I managed to churn it out I I don't know if if I'm proud but it surprises me more than anything great and last thing
0: is an executive producer uh, entrepreneur a tremendous stand-up comedian who's worked the world and the most successful guy out there in terms of personal appearances and comedy all over the world what advice do you have the for the young comedian or the young artist out there in any profession that's starting in these humble beginnings in a small town, not knowing what listening to some comedy albums, trying to figure out how to get to the next level. What advice do you have for them to get to the point where you are in
1: your career? My advice is always do it for the love of what you do. Do it for the fact that, you know, you're not working for somebody else. Do it thinking about how much worse your life could be and I think a lot of people focus on what they don't have when they should be focusing on what they do have and that kind of leads back to when you say why don't I do movies well I could focus on what I don't have or I could put all my effort into what I do have (laughs) um do what you do it because it feels right do it because you would be doing it uh with or without success you just love doing it That's awesome. You are a force
0: (laughs) of nature, and I love this, and I'm so honored that you came and you sat and you did this with me, and I know that uh, you were sincere when you said it, that you really
1: did want to say yes, and I do believe you. Yeah. You know, Barry Barry asked me. He said, should I call your brother? I said, Barry... I'm going to do your podcast. You don't need to go through channels. You're asking me directly. I'll tell you as a man, yes. (laughs) Well, I appreciate it. The audience is going to appreciate it, and I'm honored, and thank you so much, man. Thank you, young fella.
0: As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, and if you like the show, tell all your friends, and if you don't like the show, tell all your friends.
1: All the people love you, cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamer, they have all to gain. It's never quite over till so it all feels the same. Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.
0: Hey, everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it, because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to Berrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.